Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, and this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world. Understanding how the world works often involves looking at actors of all different types and at all different levels. There are state actors. There are large non-state actors. Drill further down into the categories of actors and you get to the individual. While we often like to think that the world's superpowers, economically, militarily, politically, are the actors who really make the weather, sometimes the work of a single individual has the capability to quite literally rock our world or at the very least, to rock our businesses and the foundations they sit on. Today, the Global Insight gets to talk to two people. One of them is Terry Patterson. Terry joined us directly from the FBI just under a year ago after serving as Executive Special Advisor to Director Christopher Wray. Terry counts among her many other professional accolades the following. She's the former chief of the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit. She's a former assistant special agent in charge of the Washington Field Office and has a PhD in legal psychology. And so the first thing that you're going to learn in this podcast is that Terry took that professional background and came to work for Control Risks. Terry, welcome to the Global Insight. It's great to have you. Thank you so much, Chuck. I'm happy to be here and so happy to join you and Jackie. You mentioned Jackie, and Jackie's the other person that we're talking to. Jackie Day, also based in D.C., is a partner at the firm, and Jackie leads Control Risks Crisis and Security Department for the Americas, companies that get in trouble from as far north as Yellowknife, Canada, all the way down to Ushuaia in Argentina, rely on Jackie and her team to get them out of some really nasty pickles. Jackie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Chuck. Good to be with you and Terry both. So let's jump in. Let's talk about the current state of affairs and a population that is increasingly vulnerable. And if I was on television, I'd put vulnerable in air quotes. What does this mean for companies? We have approximately 40 to 55% of employees, our working adults, who have reported a decline in their mental wellness since the beginning of COVID. We're also hearing concerns around increased symptoms of mental illness in previously healthy employees. And then, of course, also in some employees who have experienced some difficulties in the past, they're now seeing a reemergence of of some of those challenges associated with anxiety, depression, and other types of mental illness. The stability of their foundation has been rocked, and those support systems and those support structures that they would often and typically rely upon are often not available now. This is what we mean when we say that we have a vulnerable workforce. We're seeing a multitude of stressors that are really bearing down on our workforce. And so this, of course, is the perfect storm that's brewing for a multitude of issues that we have heard, not the least of which is nefarious behavior in the workforce and and in the workplace. When you have an unwell workforce, you have a whole range of negative consequences, the least of which really is productivity concerns. One could really argue that mental health issues now, from everything you just described there, you know, anxiety through to depression, isolation, and and, and issues beyond that, could now potentially be categorized as, 
I'm using air quotes like Chuck, reasonably foreseeable risks, which normally serves as the litmus test for, for duty of care, right? So I think increasingly we're seeing a lot of our clients ask questions around this and to help guide their thinking. They want to know what others are doing, what's working well, what's not, how are employees responding. There's some big and really interesting questions in there for companies to consider about what sort of early warning and sort of detection programs they should put in place, right, to spot these these issues before they become more serious. And a lot of companies aren't really that comfortable exploring that territory, or at least it's it's uncharted territory, right? You know, it's funny. That's what I was going to ask you. I mean, if you hurt yourself at work or you hurt yourself on a business trip or you just fall ill, you, you get the flu, you, you, know, you, you need to take medical leave, companies are good at dealing with that. This is a whole new category. How comfortable is this for companies? And, and what do you have to do to get a company into a space where it can manage these issues? We certainly are advocating, Jackie, as you mentioned, you know, just trying to get the training that is needed to frontline supervisors so they can recognize some of the behaviors, some of the early warning signs of a mental health crisis, some of the early warning signs of that resilience being compromised in an employee, and really trying to intervene and shore up some support for them early on, which is critical. Jackie, you and Terry are in Washington and I'm in London. And sometimes I look at your lockdowns there in the US, which vary considerably from state to state and city to city. And then I see what's going on here in Europe, where I think by and large, the pandemic management and the lockdowns is much, much more strict. We deal with a lot of companies that are headquartered in, in countries all over the world, and they have activities in lots of different places. There's got to be a fairly difficult balance to strike between where you put your bandwidth, where you put your energy, where you put your limited capacity. There isn't a single answer to this, right? Because it, it does point very squarely back to company culture and sort of how far in companies want to lean. You know, it was interesting. I was listening to the human resources director at one company recently who said that they now prefer to characterize themselves as the chief resilience officer rather than chief human resources officer. And all of the programs of that company are, are really aimed at, at building resilience, but targeting at sort of informal forms of building morale, fostering connectivity and sense of community, mostly in the virtual fora. So, so that can sort of be done across boundaries and it doesn't necessarily speak to one jurisdiction or another. And that's everything from, you know, mindfulness sessions to Zoom yoga or Zoom cooking classes to virtual happy hours and that sort of thing. And these are not traditional areas where a company has has played, right? You know, this this tends to be activity that employees organize on their own. And it's not necessarily what I would describe as the corporate domain, but we're seeing more and more of that sort of thing happen. And that's sort of on the informal side. I, there, there's another category I, I would just add here because I think it's so interesting to see companies doing this, particularly in the jurisdictions where schools have remained closed and virtual schooling has just been painful for everyone and, and greatly impacted employees' ability to work either from home or back in the office or on the plant floor, whatever the case may be, right? Some companies have set up their own daycare centers. So that's kind of an easy one, assuming you are able to support financially. But some have also tapped into their spouse networks to set up their own schooling or tutoring systems because they have a lot of former teachers 
I mean, that's obviously not going to work everywhere, but those are some really great new approaches for tackling these issues. And, and maybe some of them will endure beyond COVID and maybe some of them won't. But I, I just thought it was worth sort of mentioning here. I guess what we also have to touch on is you know, the, the increasingly frequent conversation about the role of extremism. How does this fit into the landscape? And also, how does it look in companies? I think it's always important when we think about extremism and we think about nefarious behavior, we think of it in terms of a pathway, right? So I often get asked, what are some of the characteristics? What is the profile of? And then you can kind of fill in the blank. And I'm constantly reminding people that we really are talking about a pathway to nefarious behavior, a pathway to violence, extremism being a pathway that starts with radicalization and then moving, in some cases, not in all cases, moving toward violence, mobilizing to violence. And so, again, really important to think in terms of this constellation of factors that come together and influence and drive an individual toward nefarious, malicious, violent behavior, right? And all of those factors are dynamic. And so the good news is always that we have the ability, if we recognize early warning signs, we have the ability to interrupt that pathway and to influence the trajectory and then to hopefully prevent the further movement toward violence. So I think it's it's important here to sort of dig in a little deeper and highlight the fact that we are seeing a decided uptick in direct targeting of companies by a variety of threat groups, including extremist groups, right? And there are a number of different manifestations of that. It could be physical, it could be digital. And this is where I think it's important to really think about what and where you're projecting that could put you squarely in the crosshairs of some of the, the groups that might look to, to target you because your belief system or what your company stands for is, is somehow antithetical to their own beliefs, right? And we've seen a lot of instances of this recently, easy examples with big tech and the deep platforming of former President Trump and, and some of the right-wing groups. And I think it's important that we sort of talk about this now because it's, it's really tricky territory, right? And some companies are absolutely obligated to have robust threat monitoring programs in place and capabilities. And others might not feel that's in, entirely necessary, but you know that's at their own peril that they don't take some steps to, to prepare themselves a bit better. When you have, again, going back to this vulnerability, a stressed population, you have that going on, which we've, we've had that for some time now. And then you layer into that some of the social and political issues that we've all seen you know, front and center, again, over the last several months with the COVID restrictions, grievances, ongoing grievances are around the election and the results of the election, you know, law enforcement's use of force. That's an issue that continues to, to, to come back. And then, of course, immigration policy, all of these issues that are hot topics that are sensitive and really are part of an ongoing social and political debate. When you have that combined with, again, an aggrieved, vulnerable population, then you certainly have the recipe for ongoing activity. Some of that activity, very pro-social protest activity and activism but always when you have protest activity and activism on a large scale, you're going to have this concern 
as we do about violence in the course of that activity. And so when we see a group that lacks, you know, this identifiable hierarchy or they lack a command leadership, or when you have social media that allows the environment for rapid mobilization of protesters, then we certainly get concerned about violence. And of course, there's always the concern, this persistent concern and threat from lone actors who can either on their own mobilize to violence or who can hijack a movement and take aspects of that movement and then move to the extremes, become radicalized, and then act in a lone capacity to target government, but certainly businesses. I always try to set the stage also by reminding people about this really ugly period The end of 2019 is when we started to see a rapid emergence of domestic terrorism on a scale that we haven't seen before, right? Where we had these three incidents of domestic extremist violence. It was in a seven-day period, within a week. You know, we had the, the Garlic Festival in Gilroy, California. We had an extremist who opened fire, killed three, wounded 16 before he killed himself. And then on August 3rd, a few days later, we had 22 people at a business in El Paso killed before the extremist turned himself in. But he called himself a terrorist and said he was anti-corporation. And then a few days later, we had a subject kill nine people at a bar in Dayton, Ohio, including his sister, if you you remember this case, tragic case. But he, too, espoused multiple ideologies. So you have these lone individuals who become radicalized, often self-radicalized, and but can really exact great damage on companies, obviously on our citizens, and all in the name of an extremist ideology. And so I would just say that this threat is not waning. It's actually growing with the FBI reporting more of these cases in 2020 and then leading into 2021 than they ever have before. I'm just going to jump in on something you said there, because it it keys back to a number of previous conversations we've had. You actually use the term domestic terrorism, right? And that's obviously a difficult label to use, particularly in the United States, where you, you have a perception of infringing upon sort of freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, but but also just the general conception that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, potentially, right? And, and companies not wanting to play in this space whatsoever, because it is perceived to be just rife with peril. But I mean, you just said it there, which I think given your background and, and everything that you've done in your career, it's really quite important to hear you you saying that and for people to sort of understand the best way then to deal with something as serious as a threat of domestic terrorism. Yeah, I think, you know, typically we certainly want to avoid labels. I always say focus on the behavior. The behavior is what we really need to address and we need to focus on. But I do think it's important to recognize that, again, this is a, it's a pathway. And so a pathway starts with indicators of a problem, right? And in its infancy, if you're talking about someone who is working for you and an employee, this might look like typical performance issues, right? Where you start to see someone being distracted. They seem to be angry. They can't get along well with others. All of those performance-based issues might be early signs of 
extremism. It might be early signs of, of a mental health crisis. It might be early signs of just stress in one's life. But then as the person continues to move along this trajectory to radicalization, then you certainly start to hear and, and see more robust signs. And then, of course, on to violence. And often it's only after these violent incidents that we can look back and say, yes, there was a violent ideology that the person was espousing. And so taking a look back is always, of course, illuminating. But we do know that there are indicators, early indicators in almost all of these cases. An important study conducted by the FBI when I was at the Behavioral Analysis Unit revealed that in 85% of extremist violence cases, we of course called them terrorism cases in the FBI, 85% of those cases revealed witnesses who saw early indicators of what was to come. And so the push is always, it was for me then in the FBI, and of course here it is for me now, to always encourage the reporting of those early indicators of problems and to have a system by which coworkers, managers, other employees can report those concerns up and then to have a formalized system of dealing with those concerns rather than saying, wow, well, maybe this is simply a performance issue. Let's deal with it and then just move away. So again, just having a formalized process by which you deal with concerning behavior is critical, especially at a time like this. It all makes good sense. And you've outlined sort of best practice, but how do you detect anomalous behavior when everybody's behavior is anomalous right now? You know, I kind of come from the Department of Labels and you know, because we have risk metrics that rely on kind of calling things by certain names, there's also insurable categories of risk that rely fairly significantly on calling certain things by certain names and making sure that they pass a test on all of this. And then there's sort of the issue of, you know, when does an employee have a mental health issue and when does an employee just have a political perspective? Again, I rely on numbers. You like labels, Chuck. I love the numbers. So, you know, prevalence rates, it's hard to really put our fingers on a good prevalence rate when we're talking about violence in the general population, but we do the best we can. And prevalence rates have consistently indicated that of all of the violence in the general population that occurs on a day-to-day -day basis, about 6% is attributed to mental illness. That's hugely important. It's important for me to say it. I say it time and again, because when someone is mentally ill, they are generally not violent. That's important. And people who are generally violent are responsible, accountable for their behavior, and it's not attributed to a mental illness, right? So that's important just to kind of set the stage. However, we do know that stressors, psychological stressors that compromise an individual's resilience, what is resilience? Resilience, again, is your ability to deal with uncertainty, your ability to deal with adversity. How is it that you manage that? It's been well established that stressors break down our ability to deal with adversity. Now, how a person deals with that adversity, how a person manages when their resilience is broken down, really depends on, again, going back to that constellation of factors, including how they were raised, what they observed, dispositional factors, a whole wide range of biopsychosocial factors. What we do know, though, is going back to the FBI's research, there are indicators, early indicators that an individual might be moving toward 
a position of radicalization or becoming radicalized, there's a process that is, again, well-defined that starts with an injustice that the person perceives this injustice and they then identify a target, someone or something that is to blame for that injustice. And then they move into villainizing that person, seeing that person as all bad, all evil, and then starting to believe that not only is that person bad, but they must pay. They or it, the entity, must pay for being bad and evil. And then, of course, finally, the final step to that radicalization process is believing that violence is justified in order to promote some kind of change. Most people who are radicalized never mobilize to violence. But you have, based on all of the, that complex combination of factors that I keep referring to, you have a certain number of people out there who absolutely believe, once they become radicalized, that violence is not only justified, it's necessary, and they decide, hey, and I'm the person. I'm the person who's going to make the change. I'm the person who's going to be violent, and I'm going to let everyone know and try to right this wrong. So I go back to this again. We focus on those indicators. They're well established. They're out there. And so if we can intervene early, then we can often interrupt this trajectory. If I can, as a final question posed to both of you, Jackie, how do companies horizon scan? And Terry, what are they looking for? For me, it starts with a shift in mindset from a risk management 101 standpoint in that you shouldn't discount the improbable or worst case scenarios as outliers anymore. The ongoing lessons learned from COVID and, and events of 2020 more broadly really have pretty squarely taught us we need to open our collective apertures a bit more. And by that, I mean, it's now truly incumbent upon companies to be better prepared to deal with the full range of risk events, no matter how inconceivable some of them may seem. From there, companies need to ensure they have access to all sources of intelligence, combining both human and technological capabilities in order to build that more complete macro level picture to try to spot and get ahead of threats and issues, both globally and locally, with the potential to cause them harm pretty much anywhere, anytime. And they need to do this while actively monitoring their key locations and assets so that they can zero in on local issues quickly when the need arises. Companies that do this best, that we see, it then firmly link their horizon scanning and more tactical threat monitoring activities with associated prevention and response programs sort of across the board, from executive decision support all the way through to boots on the ground security support. It's really the best way to stay on top of developments, if not actually get ahead of them and, and move from, you know, sort of a defensive posture where you're constantly reacting to events when they occur and into a more anticipatory and proactive posture, trying to get ahead of events before they occur. Yeah, you know, I think it always comes back to, you know, baseline behavior. So what you're looking for, I think, is any deviation from the norm, from what you have seen, whether it's in your workforce, your whole population, or certainly in individuals. Because I think as we look forward to the coming months, we're going to have ongoing challenges. And then we're going to have new challenges as businesses continue to navigate a whole range of issues that bring their workforce slowly back into the workspace, the office setting. And with that will come stress. And with stress, 
again comes those compromised coping skills, which can lead to a whole host of issues that come with these hybrid models of remote and return to work. So I think, again, bottom line, teach your people, train your managers, train the workforce and how to elevate problems, have that structure in place, a formalized structure that people can report some of the problematic behaviors that they're sure to see in the weeks and months moving forward. What I can hear in your voices, even from this far away, is a real passion and a real depth of knowledge and dedication and experience to these issues. Terry, huge thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Chuck. I enjoyed the discussion and look forward to more going forward. Jackie, I hope you'll also join us again and revisit this or other topics. But thank you. Thank you for now. Would be my pleasure. Enjoyed it. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay updated with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient at controlrisks.com. Thank you, and bye for now.